It's been a real treat studying the flood. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. There was a wise pastor who once at a conference said to a bunch of us slightly younger pups, hey guys, perk up, they pay you to read. And the room kind of sat there, you know, most pastors are really struggling with things like how to encourage the congregation to do service projects, how to get the Sunday school to work, you know, but it's true. You pay us to read. And man, is that a blessing in my life to, to be able to read the Bible deep every week. And so this week, spending a lot of time in Genesis 7 and 8, which meant for me more time with uh, Hebrew taxonomy, like animals, like what's the difference between a raven and a dove? I mean, you have your assumptions, but what did they think the difference was back then, right? That kind of thing. Uh, numbers, why is the number 40 important? Why is the number seven important? Uh, digging into that. What I hope is that with all the joy I found this week in this really terrifying story of the flood, um, I hope to give some of that to you today. We're going to do it a little bit piecemeal. we got to pick up some from last week, didn't quite finish, uh, and then we're going to just step through. But if there's anything for you to write down, to take home with you from this middle section of the story of Noah, where we see the whole earth destroyed, every human being Dead. I mean, put it in our terms today. Chicago, New York, L.A., Houston, Paris, Nairobi, on and on. Shanghai, all of them in 40 days, dead. With the animals and the insects. On the other side of this, God remembered Noah. This is huge. So if you take anything today, God remembered. It means God remembers and where God remembers, where he puts his memorial, where he says, do this, I remember you. Huh? Well, that's some lightning in a bottle right there. Kneeling to receive his gift of the Lord's Supper, which you're going to do today. Making you the ark through which his word is going to ferry in the midst of this raging flood of this life. What a gospel. Baptized into Jesus as you are. Chosen, anointed, all these things. So take that, if nothing else, and then find your way to page five of your pew Bible with Genesis chapter seven, verse 11. This was in last week's reading again, but there's just enough in two verses from last week's reading that really impact this week's reading that we, we got to cover these things and pick them up. So uh, chapter seven, verse 11 says this, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. So here we have some of that science question stuff, okay? So if you're gonna get into how did the flood happen? Can we look at the evidence of it and study what it left behind and make an explanation of the world that we see, maybe even better than those who believe it all exploded out of nothing accidentally, right? Uh, when you dig into that, a super question becomes, what on earth are the waters underneath the earth? And what on earth are the waters above the earth that somehow now are coming through these windows of heaven things? 
And again, the hydroplate theory creation science has some interesting thoughts about this. I don't want to dismiss that stuff. I find it fascinating, just not as fascinating as the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew language uh, builds this idea of uh, the waters above and the waters below out of a, another word that comes across in the old King James as uh, the firmament. You remember that one? Everyone's like, yeah, I've heard it. But and I maybe even know it means like the sky, but that never made sense to me, right? right? That word just never made sense, the firmament. Why would we call the sky the firmament? Well, it's because the ancient world saw the sky as being like a plate of metal that had been beaten out of a rock, right? a rock of, of uh, copper, and you beat it into a plate. You spread it out. You spread it out till it's really thin and flat, and it covers a whole space like a tarp or like, again, like a plane. That's the word. The, the, the tarp, the plane, the spread out thing. It, it doesn't mean it's solid. <laughs> uh, it just, from what you, if you look at it, that's what it looks like, right? That's what it looks like. So the firmament is where these waters above and waters below come from. And then the second word that's kind of cool is the word windows. Uh, because the word windows is, is like rooted in a time before mechanical contraptions were normative. I said big words there, but like, you know, think about your window. There's a, probably a pulley involved. There's a latch involved. There's things that, well, they didn't have in the wilderness of Sinai for sure. And uh, what were they before the flood? Uh, how did you make things? And, and, and we don't have much of that knowledge. But this word we translate as window, it means a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, it means chimney. It means window. It means aperture. And from that word, you can get to the word artifice, which is really a nice way of, of combining all of it. So the word is anything that's sort of a mechanical trick. A window is sort of a mechanical trick in the wall, right? So God opens the mechanical trick of heaven, <laughs> right? right? So does that necessarily mean there's an ice shield around the planet that had to be struck by a meteor to make the flood happen? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Could it mean that? I suppose so. What I know that it means is God did something rather not normative for the way nature works because he used a window rather than just the sky. Right? He didn't just make it rain. He used an artifice, and that's the word. Oh, and there's one more English word that is related. It's also the word ambush, which is really interesting. Your window is your ambush. Uh, Hebrew is fun this way. All right, so without digging too far into that there, I just want to give you this idea that there certainly is a sky, and in that sky, God does something that isn't happening all the time. And that thing then floods the earth with rain for 40 days, fills the earth with water beyond measure. Clearly, it implies that there's earthquakes as well, the waters from below. Again, it's all very exciting scientifically. But the long result of this then is uh, the worldwide flood. But before we get to worldwide, let's look at verse 15 and 16. We're going to jump ahead to this. Um, yeah, because I do want to talk about the flood's impact, the less how it happened, but more what it did. Uh, so here in verse uh, 15 and 16, it says, They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord, God, Jesus, shut him 
in. Now, I've heard preachers before make a big deal about how this, this is pretty cool. Like Noah builds the ark, Noah gets inside the ark, Noah brings the animals in the ark, and then God shuts the door. Like that alone is cool right there. Um, but it goes a step deeper than just, you know, God is the savior, God does the action. Uh, because the shutting, uh, that word means to like close in, to cage up or put into a dungeon. Um, it also from, is from the ancient Ugaritic, and so it means to like hand over or abandon. So, so God handed him over, God caged him, um, God uh, yeah, barricaded him in. Job uses this language to talk about God doing it to him and it's not good. Uh, but then this is the shutting word, right? The closing word. But the inward, that's a good word. This inward isn't the normal word for in. It means behind and in, kind of like there's a bullet coming right? It's going to hit somebody, and I jump in front of them so that the bullet hits me instead. That's the word. The word itself is substitutional inwardness. So God cages Noah and his family substitutionally inside of the ark. You can see Jesus there, I hope. Yeah? That this is what God does in Jesus to you. He, he puts you in the dungeon of Jesus' body, and it's, it's actually a great place to be. And it's the place that's going to go through the storm. So those pieces from last week should come to play a little bit this week. Uh, one other piece about then uh, the worldwide stuff. Look at um, verses 18 through 20 here, uh, where it's going to say, The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Uh, next verse two, all flesh died. So when you get into the arguments with the scoffers, uh, one of the things they'll pull out, they like to pull out a lot of stuff. It's like blunderbuss. Blunderbuss is a gun that you'd like put your silverware and your old scrap metal in and just kind of shoots in a big pile. So they kind of blunderbuss argument at you. They're, they're, they don't argue in a line. They just throw stuff at you and they expect you to dance. Uh, one of the things they're going to throw at you is that, well, it's certainly possible that it was a really big flood where Noah lived. There's no question that happened. But see, ancient people are dumb and they don't know about how big the world is. So of course it wasn't worldwide. And you can say, yes, but every culture in the whole world that has a creation story has a worldwide flood story as well. And they'll say, yeah, it doesn't matter. And then they'll shift the topics to something else. They'll talk about six days or something. They'll, they'll dance around it. Uh, but what I want you to just get deep, deep, deep in your mind is that this was a cataclysmic event beyond our imaginations. Straight up. 15 cubits, 45 feet above the highest mountains on the planet. I, I can't even imagine it. Water world. God's not green earth. God's blue earth. Interesting. It is blue now from a distance, or so they tell us with the satellite pictures they take. Pale blue dot. Why is that? Because it was green. It was more green before the flood than it is now. So this is the thing to see about the cataclysm of the flood, is that the world before and the world after were tremendously different. You got people living lots of years long. You got no such thing as rain or rainbows. You can't eat meat. All these kinds of things before the flood. One I just want to throw at you, because uh, I never see anyone talk about it, is how before the flood, the whole earth was watered by four rivers. Four rivers. You know the names of two, Tigris, Euphrates, 
And I don't know the names of the other two. I could look them up again. But they're, they're all there. And they come from a central head, a central river in the Garden of Eden. And they go out and they water the entire earth. And to this day, every commentator I've ever read assumes that the Euphrates River is actually the Euphrates River from before the flood. And I just don't think they believe in a flood. Because there's no way those four rivers are left anywhere on the planet. There, there might be large major waterways that kind of come from the same land or mountains. I guess that's true. What is a river? Is it the water? Is it the flow? I mean, you can get all philosophical about it. My point is to say this. The, the whole landscape dramatically changed. A green earth became a blue earth. And wherever the rivers flowed, they flowed differently now. And everybody and everyone was dead. Except for eight people. And there, in a wooden box, it's a zoo, taking care of lots and lots of animals. Can you imagine caring for the spiders? And the water stops. And then they got to wait like another half a year. Floating, floating, floating. God remembered. That's where we're going to go. God remembered. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. There's a ton here. Uh, I want to start with the beasts and the livestock. That's just kind of a small point. Uh, last week, we, we did a little Hebrew taxonomy, zoology, you know, what are animals? The way they think of kinds. What's two by two? Was it two by two of every chihuahua and what other little, and Dachshund, right? Or was it two by two of the big wolf that became all the dogs later? Um, that's what I would think based upon, again, Hebrew kind thinking of animals. And here uh, in this verse, we have a really nice repetition of what I introduced to you last week as the major definition between the types of animals in Hebrew thinking, that there's, there's two main types. And then you have like these creeping things and stuff that come birds, they come later. But everything else can be divided in two. Um, and they capture it quite well here in the ESV. The King James is a bit tougher, but you know, beasts and livestock. I told you about these last week. They're the kaya uh, and the Bahamut. Uh, Bahamut is not only either the hippopotamus or the brontosaurus, whatever you want to argue about. Bahamut is first any domesticated animal. How that became the same word for you know, the, the hippopotamus, I don't know. But here it is. Right? So it's all domesticated animals. Your cows, your pigs, your chickens, anything that you can care for and works with man. That's this livestock. That's a good word for it in English, right? And then, but beasts then, also a good word. Those are your wild animals. They're wild, you know? You can, you can cage them. You can feed them. You can maybe train one to pet you, and then it eats you later, right? Uh, so uh, that, that's the different category. And then the wild breaks down into three different types of wild. We, we went past that last week. I just wanted to remind you of these two distinctions here. But then our, our big word, God remembered. This word's a car, you know, Z-C-R, you want to remember it, Z-C-R, it does mean to remember. And remember in the way that, uh, you know, you are going to think about something that you have thought about before. Right? You've seen, you've heard, you've said, it's going to come back and think again. Let's remember. And in this way, it's kind of the same word as, and in Hebrew it is the same word as meditate or, or to contemplate. Or even to give heed to, right? If I say words and you never listen to them again, you never remember them anywhere, not a single one I said, then you didn't give any heed, right? That's this word. 
Um, but it doesn't just mean to like think, remember, meditate, hear, give heed. It also means to talk, mention, declare, recite, invoke, commemorate, and confess. So it combines both a receiving of a before thought and a presentation of that thought now. That's how the word also means, say, remembrance or memorial. Uh, the very word that then comes into Greek and we argue about when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And so some mean or think that means that we're supposed to only remember Jesus while we eat only bread and wine. And nothing else happens. It's only in remembrance of Jesus. And what that very anemic reading of the Bible gets you uh, is a loss that when the word remember is used by God and man in the Bible, it always goes two directions at once. It's never just one remembering. Always both are involved. You cannot eat the Lord's Supper without God remembering you. The Lord's Supper is the event of God remembering you today. He remembered you last week with it too. He's baptized you, so he sees you at all times. He's never not with you. But the supper is specifically instituted for him to remember you. And in this, then, you also remember him. It's pretty cool. So to summarize this, if you want some, some cool kind of English business theory to take out of this, uh, you, when you remember something, you lead people, and you do it by calling to mind, thinking to action, and calling to action. Calling to mind, thinking to action, and calling to action. I remember something I know that needs something. I think about what to say to make something happen, and I say something to make it happen. That's all in this word, Zakar. God did that to Noah. God does that to you. This is the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It's beautiful, glorious, and free. From there... I told you, it's potpourri this morning a little bit. If we could end, right? We got a few minutes, and there's more tidbits to pull out. Uh, so from there, I'm going to check my notes, make sure I didn't forget anything. Um, yeah, we're going to come up to the number 40 here, I think, in a moment. Uh, no, we're going to backtrack just to hit the number 40. Yeah, let's do that. So look at uh, 7 verse 17. So we're backing up a touch here. Uh, we've already kind of talked about the length of the flood and all. But the flood continued, it says, 40 days on the earth. Uh, the waters increased and bore up the ark. Uh, we saw the number 150 earlier. Uh, the math that I read about, let's see if I can find that note, says they're actually on the ark, something like 375 or 300, I don't see the note, 355 days. So they're, they're on the ark, give or take a year, right? Um, so you have a bunch of numbers getting dropped in this. You got the number 150, 300, 7, 17. What I want to establish here uh, is that numbers in the Bible are never on accident. Like they're always what actually happened first, right? Jesus had five loaves of bread and two fish. Five plus two also equals seven. And seven means things in the Old Testament, right? So it's what actually happened and it means something. Not just that it happened, that's the first thing it means, but it has impact. It signifies something. And you can't avoid this in the Old Testament because the Old Testament picks up on its own numbers and reuses them. You can go even deeper with this in, uh, so buckle in for two minutes. This is my favorite part. Uh, the word for number in Hebrew is, is kasar. The word also means count, write, 
book, math, scribe, and publish. What you can pull out of that is that writing was developed in order to count numbers and then words later. Why would they do that? Death and taxes, right? That'd be why they did that. So the scribe exists to keep track of what you owe. That's where books came from. Uh, and then God comes along and puts down Torah, you know, changes the world, right? Uh, so numbering and lettering are so intimately entwined that in the ancient world, you could not separate them the way we do because we use Arabic numerals and Greek alphabets. We have two systems for thinking. They had one. That's just my introduction to say then, the numbers, when they start to repeat, really mean things bigger than just what happened. And the number 40 is a great example of this. Uh, the number 40 is going to be connected to both the number 4 and 10, obviously, right? It's four tenths. It's also going to be connected to the number 8 and 5. Uh, you see your multiplication tables at work there. But all of those numbers do things in the Bible with repetition. Well, I'm just going to give you here an overview of number 4 to start. Okay, four is always three plus one, which sounds simplified, but now remember the Trinity. Before there was time, there was always three, but there was not a four until God created. And just like that, four is the number of creation, which gets repeated ad nauseum throughout uh, the scriptures. Uh, there are four directions. There are four seasons. There are four lunar phases. There are four cherubim. There are four beasts in Daniel's revelation. There are or Daniel's vision. Uh, there are four men in the furnace in Daniel. There are four rivers in Eden, like I just said before. There are four gospels of Jesus Christ for the nations of the earth. Uh, creation and the four are intimately tied together. On top of that, just mathematically for fun, it's the first square number, which leads to some really cool stuff. I'm going to say the next thing twice. It's kind of a poem, but it's kind of neat. It's the way numerology tends to work. Uh, a box has six sides. Each of those sides is a plane with four sides, making every box a six by four. And even a simple six by four is a great box to put stuff in. That's how these numbers play with each other. It's kind of cool. Now, it doesn't mean it's a revelation from God that the six by four is for you know, perfect record keeping. But what it may mean is that the number of creation, four, and the number of six, man, go together well. And this happens to go together well because it's a six by four. Three by five is a little different, different world. Huh? So the numbering stuff is fun. Four, there we just did four. Here's 10. Okay. 10 is the fullness of God's design. And you know this because the Ten Commandments are the fullness of God's design. I got a book called Echo. You can pick up in the back. It's about that, actually. I wrote on that quite a bit. So the Ten Commandments, Ten, God's design, that makes Ten the number of the law, the number of the sword, and thereby also the number of the decimal. Hmm. Uh, or let me say it this way, the number of the decimation. So decimation was when they would, I think it was the Romans, they would capture a group that had resisted, uh, and in order to punish them but let some of them live as slaves, they would just kill every tenth. 
decimation. But what you find is that decimating and decimulling uh, does tend to do some violence to things no matter where you do it. So 10, while being a complete and whole and governing number, always is a bit mm, strong-armed, yeah? Uh, and that you can connect other ideas to this. For example, just in math, uh, if you're going to do something and you have the number five at the end of your stuff, uh, whatever you're counting, it ends with a five, uh, it's not going to fit as well with all your other numbers. But if you have two fives, if 10 comes along and locks down five, suddenly you go from it doesn't work well to it works better than almost anything else. So five is a horrible number until 10 binds it, locks it down with the law. Right, makes it do its bidding. That's the way the number works. That's the way the Ten Commandments work. Right? That's the way God's government works. It's all there. So 10 is the number of discipline. Oh, excuse me. Um, that's going to be 40. Um, one more thought on this to kind of prove the point that this stuff is written in nature. Um, perhaps you are old enough to remember uh, Spinal Tap. <laughs> Anybody? A couple of you. Oh, some young people too. Right? So this amp goes... Two, 11, thank you, someone not got it. This amp goes to 11. It's a skit. It's a comedy skit about a rock band. And they're talking about how uh, great they are. And then, and they're, you know, they're, it's Saturday Night Live, I believe. They're British accents. You know, oh, this and stuff. Uh, and, but they look crazy. Uh, and they, they're talking about how at the real moment in the concert where they really want to get the crowd going, then they turn their amp up to 11. And the, <laughs> the interviewer is like, what, what do you mean? I mean, what, what, he's like, well, it's louder. It goes to 11. Most amps just go to 10. Yeah. And the, if you're not getting the joke, I'll explain the joke. It doesn't matter what number it is on the dial. It's the same amount of power coming through the machine, right? You just painted a number there and called it 11. But we don't do that. Why don't we, why don't we have things that go to 11? They always go to 10. Because 10 is just built into nature. It's a nice capture. It's a nice finality. It's a completion. So now we have the number of the world, the earth, four, and the number 10, together. Yeah? And that number 40 then brings the best of both together, and you get this idea of a combination of discipline, probation, revival, and jubilee. And that is that 40 always precedes 50. Huh? Uh, 40 is about being held by God in discipline for a time, but only because he loves you. And it's going to be better afterwards. That's how the 40 works. Uh, 40 is also 10 and 8. 8 is a number of resurrection. 10 and 8 take captive 5 together in 40. Again, making that 5 tends to be the number of the devil, the number of confusion and chaos. Um, they take it captive. They bind it down in the church and in the resurrection. Um, but now that's just me kind of saying what it means. To prove that, here's what you would want to do. You want to go look at these stories where the 40 comes out in the wilds of the Exodus story, 40 years. Moses in Egypt, Moses in Midian, 40 years. Moses on Sinai, twice, 40 days each. The spies in Canaan, 40 days. Elijah at Sinai, Mount Horeb, 40 days. Jonah at Nineveh. 40 days. Ezekiel lying on his side after his vision, 40 days. Christ's temptation, 40 days. Uh, the resurrection period, Christ's resurrection to his ascension, 40 days. You also got stories with Othniel, Barak, Gideon, David, Solomon, Jeroboam II, Jehoash, and Joash, all starting with the flood as the number 40. And again, 
discipline, probation, renewal, and revival. It's, it's not fun to have to build an ark against a horrifying storm. It's not fun. But there's a, there's a payoff to it. There's a payoff. And that payoff, we're going to see, we don't have time to look at the text, but you see in what we didn't read today, which is the story about the raven and the dove, the, the tale of uh, Orev and, uh, and Ziev in one sense, um, but really the, the tale of the raven and the dove, how Noah sends out these two different birds, one wild, one domestic, and they have different results. And church fathers have argued forever about what it means. I think it may be about the incarnation of Christ, but I'm going to leave that for another day and just focus on what comes back. You've been on this thing for a year, this boat. Everyone you know is dead. You believe in God, obviously, at this point, but you're still fleshly. So you're like, I'm scared. I'm nervous. What's going to happen next? You know, we got to get off this boat, our supplies are dwindling, dwindling, dwindling. The animals are getting hungry. You know, the wolf's eyeing the chickens. No. So like, uh, what's going on? He sends out the birds and the dove come back the second time with an olive sprig in its beak. That moment means more to them than it could possibly mean to us because olives to us just don't mean that much. Right? I mean, maybe you got them with some pimentos for the martini. Right? But, but after that, they don't mean that much. Uh, uh, what they meant for the old world, though, was what petroleum means to us. This was fuel for light in their houses. This was how they managed almost everything. To have an olive garden is to have fuel and light and food. Not just food, fat, which is hard to get, honestly. Healthy fat, hard to get, necessary. So they comes back with this olive branch, which... Amazingly, did you know that the olive will send forth sprouts and leaves even while still underwater? Learned that this week. That's kind of cool. But what are the odds on the whole planet coming to rest on these mountains of Urartu? We didn't even touch on that part. Uh, what are the odds that you're right by an olive grove? <laughs> Who's in charge of this thing anyway? Huh? It's 40 days after all. You're going to have a blessing coming out of the ark. And this, of course, is about the day of resurrection for you and me when Jesus returns and we see what it's all about. But it's also about every morning when the mercy of God is new. It's about every time you come to church and you're filled with the Holy Spirit by the preaching and the sacraments. Uh, that God is fueling you. We even see this in the parable of the virgins, right? Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning, burning, burning. It truly is, as, as radical as the charismatic movement was, uh, a prayer for the Holy Spirit. And we Lutherans, just because we know that the Holy Spirit doesn't operate through making people fall on the ground and spasm, uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for the Holy Spirit ourselves. And know that that Holy Spirit's going to fill our heart with trust and fill our voices with songs. And that this olive branch again, this sprig, one more piece on it. The prophets are going to pick up on the shoot that will come up from the stem of Jesse or the the little branch, the little twig that God will set up to become a mountain. So here, even here in the olive branch, you have Jesus Christ being brought by the Holy Spirit to Noah. While the wild raven flies about and the world doesn't quite do what he wants, he's going to grab that and he's going to dance with his family on that boat. Just like you're going to dance in the life of the world to come. In the name of Jesus, amen.